Hey, this is Alex Terranova, and this is the Dream Mason Podcast. We've been taught to behave, to fit in, to follow the rules, but Dream Masons reject conventional thought. Dream Masons are rebels. They take a chisel to the marble that is typical traditional life. They carve out brilliance and broadcast it to the world. Join me for another chapter as we unmask convention, embrace the rebels within us, and more deeply come to explore the complex and agitated edges of our existence. Now, before we get started, please don't be a rebel yet and grab your phone and hit that little button that says subscribe. Thank you. Because your dreams don't build themselves. What's up and welcome back to the Dream Mason podcast. I am your host, Alex Terranova. As always, it's like, man, 130, 140 episodes somewhere in here. If you don't realize I'm your host by this point, um, I don't know. I don't know what advice I can give you on that. Um, But uh, we're doing this again. It is April 29th. Uh, We, California at least, is still in a COVID quarantine lockdown to... uh, for the most part, uh, some states are opening up to some degree, but you know, I noticed that nobody really knows what is happening. You know, you can turn on the news, you can read articles, and it's like everybody says something different. The thing that I want to kind of touch on today, before we get to our guest, is just how you can support yourself. Another way to support yourself with the uncertainty that's going on. Um, and I think our, our guest will touch on some of this and, and we'll see what she brings. But um, what I've noticed is we all have a lot of assumptions and beliefs about how things are going to go, how they're not going to go, the fears we have. And we're projecting a lot of the stuff that's going on in our own head that is not based on fact out onto the world or onto our business or onto our relationships. And the kind of quick tip that I want to offer you listeners today is to notice that conversation. Notice like, you know, for me, I had a client um, about a month ago tell me they weren't sure if they wanted to keep working together. They were afraid of financial things and whatnot. And immediately the voices in my mind got really scared. Oh, here we go. They're all going to leave. The economy is falling apart. And I paused hearing that thought and I went, that's just what happens every time somebody leaves your business. And I laughed at myself because I went, man, when the economy was great and one person would leave, my ego or whatever you want to call that part of our brain would do that every time. It's never happened. I've never had everybody leave my business. Yes, I've had few you know, people come and go and sometimes they happen in, in groups. And actually every time a group of people have kind of left together, it's actually been a blessing in disguise. But it's just fear and it's irrational and it doesn't make sense. And if I showed up to my business relating to that fear as truth, the way I'm going to go about my business is going to be very different. I'm going to be desperate. I'm going to be selling. I'm going to be not connecting with people. But what I, when I paused and went, wait a minute, that's just fear. That's not real. I always have that same reaction, whether the economy is good or bad. Okay, somebody's leaving. It's no different than it always is. And then it was like, well, what do I do? And what, how do I get more clients? How do I get more business? And I you know, quickly was like, well, I've done this, this, and this. Well, I can try those things. And I said, and now there's new ways because, you know, you can't go out and personally network and meet people in person. 
So what are the new ways that are available? Well, people are on their computers more. Maybe LinkedIn's a good thing. Maybe network getting on phone calls with people you've never met is a good thing just to check in and see what other people are doing. But I started brainstorming and I came up with some new strategies. And I think that's available to all of us. So notice the thoughts that are showing up for you and actually just check in with yourself about them. Are they real? Are they fear? Are they perspective? Are they opinions? Are they based on fact? And then make a decision from a more conscious place versus simply reacting to what's showing up in your space. Uh, I want to introduce our guest today. I'm curious what, how she is dealing with processing and being with all that's happening and if she has any tips or advice based on what I just shared. Um, I'm probably, I'm going to, I'm going to do my best on her last name, uh, but she's going to help me out. Charity agreed to help me out here. My guest today is an author. She wrote a book called Beyond Wins, Eastern Mindset for Success in Daily Business Negotiations, which launched on April 22nd, and it's a bestseller on Amazon. She's a mentor for Ivy Exec and Connect Springboard. She's an adjunct professor at UCSD School for Entrepreneurship and Startups, and she's achieved, she's a, a chief global certified management trainer and Dale Carnegie certified public uh, speaker. She's worked with companies such as IBM, GE, Dunn & Bradstreet, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and she's, she's really, um, she, she makes an impact in the company she walks into, and she's not always what people expect, which is something that I'm really interested to hear about because I think a lot of us think we have to look a certain way or be a certain way to achieve and get the things we want, and that's just not the truth. My guest today is Mala Sub oh, Subramanian. Perfect. That's yes. Perfect. Yes. You got it. <laughs> oh my God. Will you say it so we can hear how it like really sounds? Sure. Mala Subramaniam. Thanks. Um, and your Mala, will you share with us like where you're from? You know, uh, a little bit about your background. Sure. Sure. I'm from India, southern part of India, and uh, I came here quite a while ago. Um, I had a master's in sociology in India, and I had one of those arranged marriages, came here, joined my husband, and quite naive about the United States. I didn't even know that I had to walk on one side of the escalator when I went up. So I was walking in the middle, and I was told very kindly, do you know you're not in India, you're here. <laughs> so um, I did my MBA here. And my first job uh, was in banking. And uh, I have to share with you this incident. Uh, you know, I was hired to go through the credit training program. I went through that and I was with Harvard graduates and, you know, Thunderbird, all these students were there. When they first looked at me, they didn't even want to say hello to me because I looked like, you know, typical Indian, uh, you know, wearing just regular clothes, not the pinstripe suits and everything. So they judged me based on my appearance. And then once they saw how fast I was in math and how I understood the whole credit training program, I saw all of them walking to me, asking me to explain things. So to me, uh, you know, I've been doing cross-cultural communications for quite some time. And my first thing is don't judge anyone you know, accept them because when you accept, you're closing the gap. When you judge, you're widening the gap. So oh, can we touch on that really quick? Sure. You, um, people made assumptions right away, right? And then it yes. like, it essentially closed the door on a potential opportunity. 
And I think judgment is kind of part of our, it's a flaw and essentially in our humanness, but it does, right? It helps us analyze certain situations like, oh, don't walk on the freeway, that, that our judgment is it's dangerous. Yes. And now that's the extreme. And we do that with people though, and we do that with situations. I want, is there, there's other times where you shared with me in our, in our prior conversations where you walk into a situation and people have a judgment about you. What, why do you, is there a way I should say that we can like right away practice? Like how do we take that filter off? Cause it's, it's almost like automatic. Right. You know, I think the most important thing when I look at people, I, I'm not looking at their clothing, their behaviors. I'm looking to see what kind of strength they can bring and how I can leverage that strength. So I'm almost like, I wouldn't use the word using them, but I would rather, you know, I've gone to lectures, you know, some of these spiritual lectures and people say, oh, this guy has done that, that guy has done that. I said, I don't want to waste my time with external uh, appearances. I want to see what's what value this person will bring to me. So that's the first thing. Every time you meet a person or you go to a meeting, all I'm thinking is what value are they going to add? What value am I going to add? And that's all. And that is something that I've practiced, I would say all my life. <laughs> I love that. And you shared with me when we, when we talked, like, you know, I was sharing with you that this idea that, you know, I didn't always see myself as somebody who, would walk into, let's just use a company you work for, like an IBM or a GE. And like, I never saw myself as, I'm going to walk into a company like that and be an executive coach for them or be speaking there. Because my box that I put myself in is, I'm younger, I'm, I have tattoos, I'm not the guy that's going to show up in a suit. And you quickly kind of told me examples of how you would go into companies and they would be surprised how you showed up. And, and quickly I saw something that was available that, that I was limiting myself because of not only how, not because of how other pe people view me, but because of how I view myself. Exactly. I, I think that is, um, I can give you this example. Um, I was, uh, as a, well, I was an adjunct for Cognizant Technology Solutions. Uh, I started teaching them presentation skills, how to do public speaking. And somebody asked me, hey, we are working, we are an outsourcing uh, company. We're working with a lot of companies based in the United States that are working with our Indian uh, teams in India, and they're having problems with communications. You're worked on both sides of the plate. Like, you're, you know, you're raised in India, you're educated there, you know all about India and Indians and you have a master's in sociology, so you know all about the cultural theory, and you've come here, MBA, and you've successfully worked in some of the top uh, business firms. Can you go in and talk to these American firms and tell them how to interact with Indians so that it doesn't interrupt the projects? Because a lot of projects were shelved or the huge losses because of that. So what I did was I did, I would go in and talk and I would wear my Indian outfit, which is a sari, which is like six y yards of material wrapped around you. <laughs> and, you know, it's not an easy thing. I wouldn't, you know, I worked for banks and IBM and all of them really conservative blue chip companies that I had to wear my pinstripe suits later on uh, when I caught on with the rest of the crowd. 
so, but I wore the sari and I would walk in, you know, when they were scheduling the meeting and everything. So they would talk to me and they would know the difference. Okay. She seems to be like a normal person. <laughs> she would fit in. So I went in, in the six yards of material wrapped around me. I would walk in there and the first look on the person that received me was like, oh my God, who is this? This is not the person I spoke to. Is she going to be able to talk in English? What is she going to do? And I would walk into the uh, thing and there would be about, uh, you know, about 25 or 30 people sitting there, all of them looking at me like, oh my God, you know, am I going to waste an hour and a half of my morning and they would look at me and I would basically look at them and I would tell them a joke about my last name, how I used to be, you know, how I was once called submarine. And I said, <laughs> I said, all of you looking at me are probably feeling like you're in a submarine, but <laughs> th this outfit I'm wearing is for you to get over the culture shock. Mm. Because once you get over the shock, whatever I say, will make a lot of uh, meaning to you. So here I am, this is the way I'm going to come in for all the meetings, take me as, as I am, but listen to what I have to say with an open mind. And I, I have spoken to Express Scripts, NASDAQ, Comcast, Williams-Sonoma, uh, all the big firms. And everywhere I went, the first class would be about 20 people and that the second and third sessions, I would have about 100, 150 people. They would actually open the, you know, the before the cafes, the luncheon rooms. That's mm -hmm. what they called it. And there would be people listening to me. So is there, when, if people are listening to this thinking, you know, I don't fit in either, right? Like whatever it is, right? Maybe it's from a, a different cultural space or it's a family space or they just don't believe them to be the person that fits in in whatever group. I think a lot of people don't feel like they fit in. Yeah. Um, and I don't hear that from you. I don't hear that you didn't feel like you fit in. It was that people would make that assumption. Is how do, do you think that, you know, somebody like me should adapt to the, the shoulds or do I empower like what my strengths are and who cares what, you know, about the tattoos or that I don't like to wear, you know, that suits really are not my thing. Yeah, right. See, f f first and foremost, I wouldn't look at myself as an incomplete person because I don't have this and this. You know, the very first thing that I learned uh, from my father was I'm complete. I don't need anything to make myself complete. So, and that is what it is. You know, you are, you or whoever it is that is feeling that way is complete. And the important thing is to look at what it is that makes you complete. Beautiful. You know, what yeah. makes me complete is the fact that I have the knowledge and the experience and the skills, the ability to communicate and the compassion I have for people. You know, I come across as a compassionate person, somebody who cares about the people. I am there and I used to tell them in the class, I'm here so that I can ease the tensions between you and the Indian teams that you're working with. So I'm here to help you. So take that help from me and look at what my strengths are. So the first thing I tell all the people that I coach is here, and it's in my book, uh, it's called an accomplishment grid. 
So before any meeting, even before this meeting with you, Alex, I sat down and wrote the top five accomplishments and how I accomplished them and what benefit I brought to the people because of those accomplishments mm. and what are my specific strengths and what is that one thing that makes me stand about the rest. And, and that is what I prepare myself. And then nobody can say anything like when, like the, you know, the Harvard and the MIT people that were sitting in the uh, Thunderbird people that were sitting in my class. I knew what my strength was. And that. that's what you should carry you through. It's such a great practice. I know I've done that not as formal. And I think that's just so easy where I've been, you know, going into a meeting or something and doubting myself. And then I go, wait a minute. I wrote a book. I started a business that, you know, I'm in the top 3% of coaches in the world. They, you know, like, and the, all of a sudden you go, what are you doing? Like, yeah, you might, I still have so much growth and so many areas to so many things I still want to do, but yet the, the thoughts in my head are the things that other people might say when I remind myself of what, the journey that I've already taken. It's like, you can be pretty proud of yourself and, and feel yes. good about what you, who you are and what you've done. Um, you made me think of a funny story. I love the idea of the cross kind of cultural communications and how we just get like, we, we like miss wavelengths. Yeah. I, um, I hired, I have a team that works for me that's actually out of India that um, I had never hired anyone in another country before, but a friend of mine had been working with this team out of India that helps her with her website. And she was having astounding success. And I went, can you refer them to me? So she refers them to me. We get in, you know, we, we sign the agreement. They're going to start working on things about my website and SEO and whatnot. And I already trust them because of whatnot, but their communication style was very different than what I was used to. Mm -hmm. I would get emails that would ask a question and I maybe wouldn't respond for a day. So I would, you know, I'd get an email on Monday and I, I was going to respond on Tuesday or Wednesday. And then I'd get an email later on Monday that says, please respond. <laughs> and, and maybe I'd respond or maybe I wouldn't. Usually if people push at me like that, I like ignore them more. I like don't. Right. <laughs> and then I'd get a, sir, can you please respond now? And it was like those exact words, sir, can you please respond now? And the first time it happened, it triggered my kind of how, Amer how an American would do that. Now, if an American talked to me that way, whether it be in person or over email, I'd be like, what a jerk. Nice. You know, where's the, like, what, who, who am I, do what, you know, do I work for you? Like, am I I'm not a person? Do you, are you looking down on me? I would get very defensive. And I don't know what, but for some reason I went, wait a minute, this guy's in India. I have no idea how, how, how cultural communication works in that India. I've never been, but I also don't know how it translates, which is a whole, a third area. Yes. And I paused and I caught myself and I'm like, man, you're getting so worked up. <laughs> about these emails that really are irrelevant. And, and it was funny. I, like, I have no idea. You know, I don't know this guy personally, but I, I can imagine that you see that stuff all the time. Yes. Yes. And in fact, uh, I talk about this, and I'm going to be talking about it uh, this afternoon at UCSD uh, virtually. There are three core values um, and that's what happens across all cross-cultural, whether you're uh, communicating with Japan or China or Europe, you have to look at the core values. The core values of the United States is that we are independent in our thinking to each his own. You know, when we do work, we expect to be rewarded. 
individually. And time is money. Time is the essence. And because of that, we structure so many processes so that we don't get delayed on anything. And the third thing is relationships. You know, our, um, we are like, in India is very group uh, oriented, whereas we are individual independent and, and status, the hierarchy. India is very status uh, oriented, uh, you know, when the manager is there, the person working for the manager will not say a word because they have this uh, phenomenon that you don't want to lose um, a face. You know, you don't want the manager to lose face. So you don't want to say anything that will upset the manager or the client. You are the client, so you're being addressed as a sir. And the, way, the reason they are telling you please respond is they are afraid that they are not going to meet your expectations. <laughs> Whereas you're thinking here, what a jerk, you know, uh, I'm the client and you're, he's asking me to, you know, how dare he, but they're doing that because they're afraid that if they don't meet your uh, expectations, it's not that they will lose the client. That is the money is not the factor. It yeah. is that, that you will be unhappy. They don't want to make you unhappy. So they, would don't, they want to satisfy you at an emotional level, not at a monetary level. So that is uh, the difference. Whereas here, you know, I mean, here it is all about money. So, I mean, I'm looking at the COVID, uh, all the discussions. Part of the discussion is about the illness and part of that is about economy. Oh, my God, we are losing time. We're losing money. But nobody's saying, oh, my God, we're losing lives. How many lives? And, you know, there is no compensation for that. Yeah. And India is just completely shut down. They don't care whether they're losing money or not. They, you know, they don't want to lose uh, lives. So it's just, it doesn't mean one is better than the other. It is, it is the, that perspective that you're going to. And that is what I uh, tell uh, people like I had well, I would give lectures and somebody said you know I had this guy he wouldn't open his mouth at all and we hired him because he has a PhD and everything he wouldn't say anything he didn't add value and I would uh, tell him because he had a PhD he felt that he didn't want to overpower you so mm -hmm. he was trying to you're the manager and he was respecting you if you had sat down with him and told him, hey, I'm unhappy about the fact that you're not talking, it is not making me happy, immediately you, he would have opened his mouth and he wouldn't shut up again. So, <laughs> I think this is such a, 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 like a glaring example of what we do as human beings all the time. Yeah. Right? The me and, the, and this guy in, in India are a really glaring example, especially when you break it down, how you broke down the, the cultures and the core values. It's like, it's silly that we're even, me and him are having, like we're both in our own little universe having this thing. And it's like, you, we say sometimes, you know, with marriages, right? Like one yeah. per year, a husband and a wife are talking, or, you know, it doesn't have to be a wife and a wife, a husband and a husband, whatever are talking. And one person saying one thing and the other person is hearing something else and saying something back. And it's like they're having two different conversations. I often feel like here in the U.S., that's the, um, the pro-life or pro-choice argument. Yeah. Is it, it's, they're actually having a different conversation. <laughs> and I think it's really interesting, right? Like one group is saying, hey, women have the right to choose. That's pretty, that's great, right? Like I, I want to yeah. support that. And the other group is saying, we need to be, we need to support life and not kill babies. 
Those are different conversations that are being pitted against each other, I think, for political, for political gain and for, to keep people down. But I, we don't need to even get into that. But whenever I hear those things, I go, man, I think most humans are pro-life. Most humans care about life. And nobody wants really, to. Yeah. And if you really think you're killing a child, nobody wants to kill children. Yeah. And I think most people care about people being able to choose about their own bodies. But the way that it's been positioned, it's like we're, one group is speaking you know, Chinese and the other group is speaking <laughs> uh, English. And, it, and, and so it's not weird that we never make any progress in this area. Correct. Um, because I, you know, I talk about this in the book, um, Alex, I, I say that, you know, a lot of times I hear people saying, oh, I've communicated to that person. Mm -hmm. Communication, communicate and to cannot be in the same sentence. <laughs> you know, I say that communication is common understanding. Mm -hmm. If you don't have common understanding of the problem or a shared understanding, then you cannot solve that problem. And, and, and most of the times, negotiation, they, they call it negotiation, I call it bargaining when you don't have common understanding. So in, yeah. in bargaining, one side always wins and the other loses. There's no win-win or win-loss in, uh, you know, um, in, in a bargaining, you know, one side always loses and the other side. Whereas in negotiation, you have to have that common understanding. You, said, you shared something in the very beginning that you're the first person I have ever met who, who has experienced this. So I'm actually really curious in how it, what you've learned from the experience, but also how it plays a part into business. You shared right at the beginning that you were in an arranged marriage. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I recently have actually been thinking a lot about this because I realized for the first time not that long ago that, some, that in the Western culture, the feeling of love is, can be a very disempowered feeling. Like we say, we've fallen in love. Yeah. And often what happens when we fall in love? We do things that are irrational, that are crazy, that are not in line with what we're committed to. And what happens when people get upset? And like, I mean, the US has like a 50% divorce rate. So people fall in love and then things don't go perfectly and they, it's easy to get, fall out of love. And I was thinking, wondering a lot about like, man, when people get into arranged marriages, they don't have the fall in love feeling. But it made me think about over time, do they create and generate and build love as a choice versus something that is just a reaction? Um, so I'm curious about your experience with that just personally, but also how being in an arranged marriage, what that taught you about communication and partnership. You know, uh, there, there is a saying somewhere I heard, expectation kills the joy of living. So in a marriage, uh, in an arranged marriage, there is no expectation. It is done because two families uh, got along together and they feel like, okay, this family comes from the same background. They have the same, uh, you know, class, uh, caste, everything, all those different uh, community uh, important, uh, you know, uh, categories. And so you, f you make a match and the girl and the boy get matched that way and they get married. So anybody who has had an arranged marriage is not going and thinking, oh my God, this is going to happen and I'm going to have this and that. And all these expectations are not there. It is more like, okay, these are the things I need to do. Mm -hmm. So when, when you base any decision on a need rather than a desire or want, 
then that is that lasts longer. Mm. So, so I went in, you know, and the only thing I had was expectations of the United States because I had seen all these rockets and movies and all these beautiful cars. And <laughs> so I came here when I realized I had to go into the kitchen and do my own kicking, you know, cooking and washing dishes and everything. Then I said, uh oh, <laughs> the dream came flat. So, <laughs> but that is, I think that is the key. And, and this is something I heard even, um, in one of the royal weddings where uh, the person who spoke said that, you know, have fewer expectations of each other so that there would be a joy in your living. Do you, can you connect this to what you've learned? Like, can, do you, can you apply what you've learned in your marriage and in being in an arranged marriage to business at all? And yes. Yes, absolutely. Because when I take a job, I'm not going there with any expectations. You know, uh, in interview, they always ask me, where do you see yourself five years from now? Where do you see yourself 10 years from now? You know, one day I jokingly said, I see myself in the beach. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I always tell them, as long as I'm adding value to the company, I re it doesn't matter to me whether I'm the, the director or the vice president or the chairman of the company. If I, the day I stop adding value, I'll quit my job. So I'm going into the company, not with expectations from the company in terms of, uh, you know, promotions and titles and things like that. I'm going there with the expectation that the company will provide me the opportunity to add value and to uh, things. So, and, and that is what everybody who goes into business should do. How can I add value? Yeah, I hear you talking about, which is something I've, we've talked about a lot on this podcast. And I talk, and I, I really base my life off it, but I, I also bring it to a lot of my clients, which is live your life from your commitments instead of your feelings. That's which good. to me is like, I you, like li that. You, li you live from adding value. Like it's so obvious that adding value is a commitment that you have. And so if you feel like adding value or you don't feel like adding value, it kind of is irrelevant. That's, what you, that's, that's who you are and it's kind of an integrity for you to add value. And I like that you said, if I feel like I'm not, well, it seems like you'd have two choices, either find a way to add value again or leave the job. And, and, and that's what I've done in my thing. I mean, I didn't do that in the marriage, but I, <laughs> you know, in the marriage, you have that commitment, you know, regardless, mm -hmm. but in business, uh, in companies, uh, you know, I have, I have reached the pinnacle and I have provided all that I can and I feel like, okay, they don't need me anymore, then I quit. And for me. Go ahead. Go no, ahead. what were you going to say? And, and what? And if, for me, it doesn't matter. Uh, the title doesn't matter at all. Mm -hmm. So well, that is why it doesn't bother me. I can go and walk into a C-suite wearing a sari and expressing my opinion strongly. And I could wear a pinstripe suit and say the same things. It doesn't yeah. matter to me what they think. You, you share, like a, in a lot of your sharing, you can tell that there's like a lot of ego not in the, in the space. And I think here in America more, it's only, this is the only place I've, I've lived for an extensive period of time, so I can only really comment on this. There's so much ego mm -hmm. in, in business and, and even in relationships, right? Like I think 
you've heard the, you know, you can be in relationship or you can be right. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> and it's, I wish it's not mine. I, it's one of my mentors and I don't know where they got it from, but I, even knowing it, I find myself in relationships and I'm like so committed to being right in, from ego and in business or with clients. And I think like I, I'm aware of it. So I'm personally working on it. Was this something that, do you think this is something that you adapted to because of your upbringing or is this something you learned like along the way? I think it is more uh, adapted because of my uh, upbringing and also the strong Indian, um, you know, Eastern principles. You know, ego in Sanskrit, it's called ahamkar. Ahamkar means myself. And uh, ego, according to Indian uh, thing, is not a bad thing. It's, it gives you identity. If you didn't have the ego, the identity, you wouldn't be able to live in society. You would have to go and live in some mountain in a cave or something. So you need the identity. The identity carries with it your role, uh, your, uh, you know, a responsibility and power. And what happens here is what I feel is people get attached to the power and forget the responsibility. So you can have the ego, you can have the identity, but if you hold on to the power and not accept the responsibility, that's when problems happen. So for instance, uh, you know, I, I give uh, this, you know, when I used to do market research presentations in um, companies, and there'll be a lot of people sitting there and people will start because customer satisfaction re uh, research is a very touchy sub subject because it kind of, influence the compensation of the audience. So they would get all upset. You know, they would say, I, you know, I, your statistical sampling is not right. The way you've asked the questions is very biased. And they would throw all these challenges at me. And I had an analyst who would say, stand right next to me and get very upset. He'd say, well, I have a PhD. I have you know, been doing the sampling for 10 years and you're telling me I come from a research firm. And I would always tell him, no, you're becoming defensive. You're focusing on you. You have to focus on the problem. You have a responsibility here to educate the audience that this research is valid, not that you are valid. So don't take it personally. Don't take your ego, you know, don't let your ego, the power, in that ego fly high and don't become defensive. So I think that is, that's what if everybody consciously said, okay, I have the identity, I do have the power, but I can't misuse the power. I have to be responsible enough to make sure that I'm using the power wisely. It's, um, it's a pretty relevant time. I love, I haven't heard it said that way, like ego responsibility and power and how we get attached to the power we get attached to power and forget about the responsibility i think the thing i find that i've seen a lot of i think we see it a ton in politics right now oh. um and i think but i also think we see it in a lot of i mean i know i've worked for companies that that's the top down was not the responsibility it was everyone else's fault there's always blaming and you know, I don't want, this isn't, we're, we're not going to have a political conversation, but I think what I, what I love about how you said it is it's unfortunate because there's, it's kind of like, it leaves everyone feeling disempowered, yeah. right? And then we all start doing it because if, if who's ever at the top 
is like, well, I'm at the top, but none of it's my fault. Yeah. And I'm underneath, I go, well, it's not my fault. It's, and, then, and then all of a sudden, it either has to be the fault of someone all the way at the bottom, who, well, that's kind of crappy. They have to take the responsibility and they make <laughs> the least amount of money and have the least amount of say. Or no one takes responsibility and then nothing changes. And I really hear, like, it's, what is it? It's, I mean, we're just come, keep saying kind of, with great power comes great responsibility. It's like, uh, I think yeah, that's like a, exactly. spy, a Spider-Man thing. Um, and I love how you pointed to, we do forget, you know, that with, that they come together, you don't get to pick, well, you can pick one or the other, but it seems like there's a big cost associated with that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because um, see, the other thing is the 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 one that really disempowers is blame. Whether you assume blame or you blame somebody else, that means you're not owning the problem. When you don't own the problem, you can't solve the problem. So if I said, you know, Alex, it's your fault then I am not getting at the real problem. What is the problem? Instead, I'm saying who, who done it? <laughs> so I'm wasting my energy on that rather than what is the problem? Let us define the problem and let us solve it. And it's nobody's fault because things happen. Yeah. How do you, when you go in, you know, you, you actually go into companies and have helped them with this and supported them with this. And right, like you don't get the opportunity right now to go into the government and chain and make them do that. But I'm curious, like what it looks like when you go, when you've gone into a big, you know, I, we, we shared some of these big companies, IBM, GE, Blue Cross, you know, like big, big, powerful companies without saying any names or anything. How do you, was there a company that you can remember that you went into where you saw it play out like this? The people with the power weren't taking responsibility. And how were you able to get, if you were able to get them to shift that? I think, I think the most important thing is data. See, you know, when I, when I go in, I, I don't go in and just like when I went to, even to cross-cultural communication lectures, I went there saying, here's the data that proves. And so the data is the thing. And, and people always said, Mala, when you come in and you present the data, the research and the insights, it is difficult for people to, you know, uh, yeah. disagree with you because you're not focusing on who is the problem. You're focusing on the market. For instance, in uh, one of the companies, I went in and I talked to them and I said, here is your company and here is a emerging company that is overtaking the market and this is how they are overtaking it but don't waste your time trying to build the system that they have just buy them <laughs> mm -hmm. so when i went with that powerful message then people stopped complaining or blaming themselves for their system being bad you know, now they're looking outward to see, okay, now we have this small company. They have it and they acquired the company. So the so, focus should be on data. Man, and then, and then we are in like the world that we're in now where nobody even believes da you know, data anymore. I think it's, it's and which is actually really scary um, because if there's no facts and right, and I'm, I'm a big 
believer that facts are always changing anyway. Like yeah. what's a fact today, we might find out five years from now with new information that maybe it's not. But today it's a fact. We have numbers, you can prove it. But we find ourselves today in this, in this really scary, I think scary time where you can't say anything. You go, well, I have numbers that show this. And someone else goes, I have different numbers. Your numbers aren't real. <laughs> um, there's no ownership. Yeah. That's the problem. Because I think there's no, not ownership of the problem, but ownership of the facts. Because facts uh, are coming from several different angles and from different people. And nobody's saying, okay, this person is responsible, the ultimate, uh, you know, responsibility for it. And let them, you know, let them dictate what the, uh, what the facts are and then accept and trust them. And that's where I feel this constant battle between the economy and the illness. Because, you know, if the fear is, okay, if we focus too much on the illness, we're going to lose money. But what they're not realizing is the long term. If yeah. you lose people, there's no economy. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, uh, if we look at, I say, I say often to clients that aren't taking care of themselves, you know, if you don't have your health, everything else goes out the window. If you Absolutely. get sick, if you have the flu, you have cancer, you can't work your business. So I don't care how great your business is. You know, if you're not taking care of yourself and that's just an individual, but on a larger scheme, I agree with you. And it's not that I don't, we don't care about the economy. It's important. People need to feed themselves. But if, if we are sick and unhealthy and we can't work anyway, it's like one has to, it, you have to be healthy to work. Yes. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah. And unfortunately I think it often impacts the people that are the lowest that have the least and have the least amount of resources and money to stand up for themselves. Um, Mala, thank you so much for being here today, sharing like your wisdom, your, your, your brilliant mind, your experience, even like the personal things like your marriage and the experience of that. Um, I, I always judge podcasts while I'm doing them by how many notes I write down. Um, <laughs> and I write down notes, not only for myself, but for the show notes, for the guests. And I, I wrote a ton of notes down today and I just feel like I learned a lot. I hope, I don't know if that sound is coming up in the background, but I have a puppy that's decided it's time to end this okay. conversation. <laughs> um, she's been quiet the whole time, but now she is going, come on, come on, play with she's me. She's getting restless. <laughs> yep. She's like, dad, all you do is work. It's time to play. But I really, I really want to thank you. Um, you know, it, it's, I, I feel like I got a ton. And when I feel like I get a ton, I know that listeners will also. I want to give people information on just how they can find out more about you. So um, the first place is, where did you put it? Um, is your uh, website. So www.beyondwins.com. Yes. Or uh, www.mktinsite.com. Uh, and are you active on, you're on LinkedIn and you're on Twitter and people yes. can find you. LinkedIn, LinkedIn is, uh, and Facebook, both, uh, I'm, I'm active on both. Okay. And I'll, so I'll throw those links into, um, into the show notes and people should go pick up your book beyond wins. That's on Amazon, Amazon bestseller right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And they can also send me an email if they want to reach out to me. It's mala at marketinsight.com. Awesome. 
Mala, thanks again. I appreciate it. This is, I have to tell you, Alex, uh, this was a very, very good, solid interview. You're, you're such a good interviewer. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks. I really enjoy it. I, like, I hope that it shows. <laughs> yeah, well, you asked very good uh, questions and you keep the flow going. Thanks. So, which is great. Thank you so thank much. You. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Honestly, I'm just a rebel who found a cause and has a dream, and I'm super grateful for your support. If you got anything from this, please help me out and share this podcast with one person today. You can find me at thedreammason.com or at inspirationalalex on Instagram. You are a dream mason because your dreams don't build themselves.